Our scripture passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing this, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read when David, what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how that he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Good morning. My name is Mark Schladorn. I'm an elder here at Cross Point Coast. I serve along with Pastor, lead pastor Jeremiah Fife and Matt Hardy, who you just saw up here for the prayer of confession. Jeremiah has been on quarantine for just over a week, and Matt, um, last week, continued our study in gospel in the Gospel of Mark by preaching on Jesus' willingness to dine with sinners. And I'll be picking up in a moment where he left off. <sighs> Welcome again. So... Um, Restfulness, restlessness. We are a restless people. Um, when I just sighed right there, it was a genuine sigh. I'm restless and I'm tired. Um, almost every day, go, not never, seldom does a day go by when I don't at some point in the day say I'm exhausted. And that's even if I haven't actually done anything physical and maybe even more when I haven't done anything physical. There's no time like feeling restless than during the middle of a pandemic. Well, maybe not a middle. Let's hope we're toward the, we're past the middle. Um, but it is a time where restlessness seems to have been amped up. We are restless in that we're waiting for something to do. We want things to get started again. We want some sense of normal, some normalcy to come back. I remember a year ago at this time, um, when we first got locked down, people were saying, Praise God for time to unplug. 
But that didn't last too long, because pretty soon it was like, please God, let us plug back in. This is, this is interminable, we, we don't want to do this. We're all itching to get back to normal. But in our longing to resume that normalcy, whatever that is, I think sometimes we forget about, in the pre-COVID days, we, we have like selective memory. Oh, it was wonderful like this, we could do these things. But we don't remember is the busyness, the restlessness that was bearing down upon us in those pre-COVID days. So I'm kind of an old guy. And in fact, I'm looking around the room trying to find somebody who I'll have to just give a history lesson. Um, but, but things have in my generation and in my 60, almost 63 years on earth, things have ramped up exponentially in terms of causing restlessness. I can, I can remember when TV turned off a little after midnight to the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, it, it actually went off. I can, <laughs> I can remember when Sundays, stores everywhere were closed. I know this because my father, who was a pharmacist, he was on rotation with other pharmacists in town. They took turns being open because it was necessary for people to get their medications. But in general, there was a hearkening back to a sense of Sabbath. There was a cessation of business on Sundays. I remember when 7-Eleven happened that my parents were like, what kind of business is this? Who opens at 7 o'clock in the morning and stays open until 11 o'clock at night? This is crazy. Who's going to be there in those hours? Things have changed in the past 60 plus years. Now we take our restlessness with us wherever we go. We can take our work. We can, we have to. Take our work with us. We take it home, we take it in our cars, we take it on vacation. My daughter was just visiting from Brooklyn, and the first two days of her visit, she was at work on her computer connected to, Brook, connected to Manhattan where she works. There's no cessation. There's restlessness. And even when we take time out to entertain ourselves. It's in, a, it's in a highly mobile, intense way. There's no rest in that. Well, in today's passage, we're going to think about and look into, in spite of this ability to never turn off work or school or entertainment, that God has a different view of rest than we do, and it often conflicts with our own, and how Jesus, in today's passage, positions himself as our only true hope of sustaining rest, true rest in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that you, in your loving kindness, and in your perfect wisdom, you have created your word to give us a glimpse into not only your holiness and justice, but also into your mercy and into your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. We thank you that Jesus' favorite, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself was the son of man in his identity, identifying with his willingness to identify with us. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit by whom your love has been poured into our hearts. And finally, we ask that as we open 
your word this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might better understand the passage and better understand you. And that this passage would bring us comfort and bring you glory as we seek to follow you and become the salt and the, earth and the light to those around us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So last week, as I referenced earlier, Matt Hardy was preaching to us on earlier verses in chapter 2. And we've seen there, and even back further on Easter Sunday, that Jesus has claimed the power to forgive sin. In today's passage, we're going to see Jesus claiming something equally audacious. Today we're going to see Jesus claim that pronounces himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, some of you know me fairly well. You know that before I was a teacher, I'm a high school teacher now, but before I was a teacher, I was a journalist, and in fact, I teach journalism in high school, so I approach everything through the lens of the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. So in doing that, I'm going to give you a little background so that you know the who, what, when, where, and why as we uh, jump into this passage. So... The context is this. Jesus had just called Matthew to himself. To, to, he said, follow me. And Matthew became one of Jesus' disciples. And then he went to Matthew's house to eat with the tax collectors, which Matt told us last, last week is a pretty strange thing, bold thing for Jesus to do because the tax collectors were considered the scum of society. They were considered by most of their people to be turncoats because they forsook their own people, went to work for Rome collecting taxes, and in addition to that, they added on whatever percentage they felt like they wanted to, skimming off the top for themselves. They were persona non grata. And especially in view of the Pharisees, they were the, the, the biggest sinners in the pack of sinners, and yet Jesus opted to go to Matthew's house and sit down and eat with the sinners and the tax collectors. The Pharisees were scandalized. So the Pharisees are going to be in today's passage. They're part of the who. Also in today's passage, we're going to see or hear about the followers of John the Baptist. We're going to see some more about sinners and tax collectors. We're going to reference the common people of the day. Jesus' disciples, John the Baptist's disciples a group called the Herodians, and of course at the center of all this, appropriately, is Jesus. So let's begin by looking at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus often challenges all man-made traditions. Then and now, he continues to challenge our traditions, our way of doing things now. Pretty much everything Jesus does and says feels counterintuitive to us. There's nothing new under the sun, Scripture tells us, and Jesus confronts the theology of those around him, and he makes exclusive claims that necessitate legitimate questions. The questions that the people, that the Pharisees, that the disciples were asking of Jesus are legitimate questions that we should 
and can ask today. The answers are revealed by Jesus in Scripture. Some of those questions would include, why does Jesus appear to be a blasphemer when he claims to be God? He says he can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Why does Jesus eat with the dregs of society? Why does he seem to prefer them to the religious people, of the religious leaders of his day? Why did Jesus and his disciples not fast while the other religious orders do? Why do they appear to break Sabbath regulations? And from our point of view, we have additional questions because all of that was kind of in the mix in Jesus' day, but we're not living in Jesus' day. Um, his day of his earthly ministry, it should be put more um, succinctly. But who are these people? What's their story? And what do they mean when they're talking about fasting? What exactly, what, are they, what, what does that mean to them? Well, fasting was commanded only for the Day of Atonement. In the Old Testament, the high priest made an atoning sacrifice for sins, for the sins of the people on, the, on this one day of the year called the Day of Atonement. The act of paying the penalty for sin brought reconciliation, a restored relationship with God between the people and their God, After the blood sacrifice was offered to the Lord, a goat was released into the wilderness to symbolically carry away the sins of the people. So the priest would lay hands on the goat, imparting the sins of the people to the goat, and send the goat out into the wilderness. We know this in our common vernacular as scapegoat. Whenever you hear somebody talk about being scapegoated or scapegoating, this is what the the antecedent to that is. That goat never returned. The sins were sent away. It was symbolic of God dealing with sin. James Edwards tells us this. The required fast on the Day of Atonement lasted a full 24 hours, whereas voluntary fasts, as a rule, extended only from dawn till dusk. Although not a legal requirement, except in one instance, fasting had become in Jesus' day a prerequisite of religious commitment, a sign of atonement of sin and humiliation and penitence before God, and a general aid to prayer. The rabbis often referred to fasting as an affliction of the soul, thereby designating it as a characteristic and sacrificial act of piety. It's part of how we can interact with God. The Pharisees were well known for fasting twice a week. They turned it into a regiment. Pretty much every Monday and Thursday was fast day for the Pharisees of Jesus' time. Now, John the Baptist, we've read something about him at the beginning of our Mark study a few months ago. And back in chapter 1, we learned that John the Baptist's arrival was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's referenced in the second verse of Mark. So John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. He was essentially the last Old Testament prophet who pointed the way to the Messiah. 
So John appeared, he's baptizing in the wilderness, he's proclaiming the baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, and all the people from Jerusalem and Judea, they went down to John in the wilderness and he baptized them in the River Jordan where they confessed their sins. John was an outlier. He was an unusual guy by standards of that day because he lived out in the wilderness. He wore camel hair, a leather belt, and he ate insects, locusts to be specific, and honey. So if you're going to join up with John, (laughs) yeah, you kind of knew that it was going to be something different. And he preached that somebody mightier than him was coming. Somebody whose shoes he was unfit to untie. In fact, John baptized Jesus. Some people say that in the context of today's passage, if Jesus is the bridegroom, and we're going to get to that in a minute, John the Baptist served as the best man. Because John the Baptist prepared the way for the groom. It's interesting, I just saw David do this a couple last week at his son and daughter-in-law's wedding. He stood up for his son. He testified essentially that this is, a, this is my son. He is a legitimate guy who has a legitimate interest in marrying Jade. I vouch for his character. Who better than dad to do that? And that's what John was doing. This, the Messiah is here. I'm baptizing him. I'm vouching for his character. I'm pointing everybody to him. So fasting made sense for the disciples of John in a sense that it didn't make sense. It made a different kind of sense to the Pharisees because John was stressing the gospel of repentance. And we talked about how fasting helps us focus more on our standing before a holy God. It's a different spiritual emphasis, but the people still ask, and John the Baptist followers ask too, why do Jesus' disciples not do this? Our rabbi, John, told us this is what we should do, but Jesus and his followers aren't doing it. Hmm. So we've already talked about the Pharisees in previous weeks, and some of the Pharisees' biggest contributions to Judaism was that they emphasized the oral tradition and elevated it to an equality with the Torah, the Old Testament. And this is one of the things Jesus comes at the Pharisees time and time again, that they have pulled in man thoughts and elevated them to God thoughts and made them parallel. The Pharisees also were interested in the piety of the people around them. They extended Jewish practices within the synagogue to outside the synagogue. They wanted everybody to behave like they behaved in church. They were kind of the sheriffs of the land. I think back, my father once told me that when he was growing up in a small town in upstate New York, And there was every week the movie changed at the theater. And if a movie showed up at the theater, and I remember him referencing Gone with the Wind as one of the movies because it had that word in it, the priest would stand outside the theater with a book 
And he would write your name down if you were in line to see that movie. Your name was in the priest's book. It's kind of how the Pharisees operated. They were going throughout Judea, hmm, taking notes. Righteous, righteous, sinner, 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 sinner. So they wanted to instill greater piety in the common people. There was a reason for that, because they were in in a Roman occupation, and Rome's ways of doing things were creeping in. We'll get to that later. They also, the Pharisees, promoted a belief in the afterlife, as opposed to the Sadducees, which were the, the more elite religious order of the day, who were more interested in the politics of the day than they were in the theology of the day. Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. So the Pharisees were at least attempting to draw near to God. The Sadducees, not as much. The Sadducees disappeared shortly after the fall of the temple or the destruction of the temple in AD 70, while Judaism has descended, the Pharisees' brand of Judaism has descended to how Judaism is practiced even today, synagogue worship. So, The Pharisees also were enmeshed or functioned in a system of meritocracy. The harder I work, the better things are. We often talk about meritocracy in our culture. You get what you work for. The harder you work, the more deserving you are of whatever rewards you will reap. But meritocracy is fundamentally incompatible with the gospel, and we're going to see that Again, a little bit later. The Pharisees also believe a good God will reward good people for doing their best. That's kind of what, in general, if you went downtown and asked a bunch of people, what happens when you die? Well, how does that work? Well, God's going to weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, and I hope my good deeds went out, because then I get to go to heaven. But I might get to get it, go to heaven anyway. But that's our general, the general cultural view. And that was a Pharisee, that, that's a Pharisaical kind of view. Jesus has already called out the Pharisees in verse 17 last week after they were complaining about him eating with, uh, with the uh, sinners and the tax collectors. But in the account in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus say something that he doesn't say in the account in Mark. And so I'm going to point you there now. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 12 through 13, but when he heard it, He heard them complaining, the Pharisees. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he adds these words that aren't in the Mark passage. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call the right, not the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So in that Matthew account, Jesus, and in both accounts, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us that our priorities are wrong. We sometimes show more concern about upholding the letter of the law than we do about the physical and spiritual well-being of those around us who we purport to point to Jesus. We need to be careful, though, of taking a view that Jesus somehow favors sinners above tax collectors because that's not what's going on here. 
Jesus is pointing out that our goodness and our badness both keep us from Christ. Jesus is concerned with the heart, not with the deeds, explicitly. He makes this actually explicit in Luke 18. So in Luke 18, we have a parable that Jesus is telling to the Pharisees that involves a Pharisee and a tax collector. So Jesus says these two guys go into a temple to pray, one's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector, and the Pharisee makes a big show of his prayer. The Pharisee stands up by himself, and this is what he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, wait for it, this tax collector standing over there. <laughs> okay. It's a little, little, little bold. And the tax collector is standing over there, but he's standing far off. He's standing off to the edges. And he can't even bring himself to lift his eyes to heaven. It says he's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here we see a, a, a view of a Pharisee making a show of fasting. And this is, was kind of embedded in the way they did things, to make a show of their piety. John's disciples were fasting too, and so people had this reasonable question, why aren't Jesus and his disciples fasting? Jesus' response, as always, is unexpected and it's disarming. This is what Jesus says in today's passage, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they take the, have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, most of us have attended or been some part of a pretty extravagant wedding. I've been to a wedding that cost tens of thousands of dollars for a single day of celebration. It was mind-blowing. Horse-drawn carriages, rooftop celebrations, it was... Wow. So we make a big deal out of our weddings. Weddings in Jesus' time during his earthly ministry lasted a full week. So take that wedding I just described and multiply it to stretch out over a whole week. The first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding in Canaan, and it said sometime during the wedding the wine ran out. And you might be thinking, as I used to, well, how can you run out of wine? It's only one day. But it's not. It was a few days before the wine ran out. It was a time in their impoverished existence under the rule of Rome for the Jews to have one day of extravagance. It was, it was, it was a highlight in life. I mean, weddings still are. But this was a time when all else, if you were the bride and groom, all else was subservient to you. They had people who waited on them throughout the week, attended to their every need and desire. It was a massive, massive celebration. The wedding proved so special that even the Pharisees 
took a break from fasting during the week of a wedding. Like, we can set aside our strict moral code because this is not a time for quiet reflection. This is not a time for mourning. This is not a time for lamentation. This is a time to party. This is a time to celebrate the bride and groom. Again, I'll reference just last week in this room, a week ago Saturday, this room was filled with people, filled with, filled with people feasting to honor the wedding of Jade and John David, the marriage of Jade and John David. So here, in this story, we see Jesus talking about fasting, but then he does something interesting because he points to himself as the bridegroom at a wedding. Well, that might seem like a reach, but Jesus, of course, knows what he's doing because what he's saying here is every bit as audacious as when he told the paralytic man that his sins were forgiven. On Easter Sunday, we here looked into the passage where um, a paralytic man had a group of his friends who, in order to get him to, in proximity of Jesus, cut a hole in the roof of a house, lowered the man down so he could be healed. And Jesus' first response, again disarming and unexpected, was, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Wait, there's a paralyzed guy here. He's here with the anticipation of being healed, which Jesus just did, by the way, in another way, a more important way, But Jesus' first proclamation is not stand up, take up your bed, and go home. It's your sins have been forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders in the audience were astounded, and not in a good way. Because they knew, and it's articulated in the passage, that only God can forgive sins, and they're right. So, When Jesus was intimating in that scenario that he was God, he is doing something equally as audacious here by saying that he is the bridegroom. And here's why. Those in Jesus' audience would have understood that in the Old Testament, God was often cast as the bridegroom and Israel as his bride. Israel's husband and lover was not the Messiah, in the Old Testament, it was God. When Jesus said he forgave the paralytic man's sons, he shocked those in attendance because he knew only God could forgive, they knew only God could forgive sins, and casting himself as the bridegroom, Jesus is again equating himself with God. The religious leaders knew that. And so did the others around him. So Jesus responds to a question about fasting and he turns it into a statement about who he is and what his mission is. He's saying if those in his audience could comprehend that he is the promised Messiah who has arrived on a salvation mission, then the only proper response would be celebration rather than lamentation because celebration is the proper response to having the bridegroom in their midst, the bridegroom, capital B. What else can we do in the presence of God but celebrate is what Jesus is suggesting. Then he goes on to say, after the bridegroom is taken away, 
And here he's alluding to his death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. Fasting will again be appropriate because we will then have a call for watchfulness. We watch even today for Jesus' return, and that's something to fast about on occasion. We fast for contrition over the lamentation for our sins. We fast for strength in times of weakness. We fast for increased sensitivity to God to help us focus, to take our minds off of everything else and focus more intently on God. But even through all that, we should remember, I was talking to my brother Joel Fair, who's the pastor at Cross Point Cape yesterday, we should remember that even now in our fasting, our fasting should be informed by joy because Jesus left us with his indwelling Holy Spirit. We're still at the feast. So we can fast and feast from our perspective. After saying the bridegroom will be torn from his disciples, Jesus transitions to two illustrations, the first of which actually involves a tearing. Jesus says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, both of these illustrations, when something old combines with something new, all is lost. The path to reconciliation with God doesn't come through ceremonial law, the old. It doesn't come from the way we always have done things, organs, not drums. It doesn't come from any of those trappings. It doesn't run through our good works or through our personal merit or even our personal intentions. The path to reconciliation runs through the sacrifice of Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, if there be one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness, which we are to insert ourselves, then we are lost. But this is our confidence. The Lord who began will perfect. He has done it all, must do it all, and will do it all. Our confidence must not be in what we have done, nor in what we have resolved to do, but entirely in what the Lord will do. With Jesus, both sinners and the righteous are confronted not by a method, but with a person, the Son of Man. In Mark, that's one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. God refers to himself by identifying himself with us, but that's what Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. Look closely at what we've studied so far in Mark. Jesus' disciples do not choose Jesus. You can read through there and nobody is saying, hey, I'm going to go follow that guy. Jesus chooses them. Jesus calls them and they follow. 
And that calling is the same for all Christians. And there's a negative and a positive aspect to that calling. Jesus not only calls us to something, he calls us from something. He calls us away from something. And the wineskin example underscores that truth. When new wine is placed in an old wineskin, the fermentation process will cause the old skin, which has already been stretched to its limits by the previous contents, it'll cause that to stretch beyond its capacity to be sound and burst, spilling the wine. Jesus is that new wine that can't be contained by tradition or ceremony. Christianity can't be grafted into some existing paradigm. Following Christ can't be grafted into anything we think is the way to Jesus. Remember, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus resists the proud. Jesus calls the humble to himself. Now, James Edwards can help us out a little bit here. He writes, the question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two Adam-like parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. Are we willing to forsake business as usual? When Jesus calls us, he explodes our old, our old way of thinking. He explodes our old, old selves. He smashes the foundations on which we have previously constructed our lives. He rocks our world. That's why the Apostle Paul, who referred to himself formerly as being a Pharisee among Pharisees, why he writes in Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now, the translators of the Greek to the English in this passage, where they put the word rubbish, they're being genteel. What Paul is actually saying is, I count all of that, all that I was, as excrement. So, Paul, who studied his whole life to get the, the Torah, the Old Testament, just right, he had it all memorized. Paul, who worked diligently to root out anything that he saw as a possible threat to the law and the way it's practiced. Paul, who was afforded a standing in the community as a holy man among holy men, who had wealth, who had fame, who had possessions. When Jesus called him, that was smashed. 
Paul says, I count all of that stuff, everything that I valued most in life, as excrement. As a Pharisee, Paul checked every single box. Believing that the way to God rested on his own performance. As he did with Paul, here we find Jesus calling the Pharisees from their religion, the old wineskin, to something completely new and expanding. Jesus is calling the people away from their religion and calling them to himself. Now it's important to note that Jesus is not condemning all of the traditions that had developed among the scribes and Pharisees. But he is warning them that they will not be able to accept their Messiah has come unless they get rid of the structures that make it impossible for them to receive him. Jesus' way and their way can't coexist in any way that they can imagine. Now, it would be a mistake to view the Pharisees as a band of hyper-religious bad guys. I remember when I was young and I would read about the Pharisees, in my mind I equated them, I used to watch The Lone Ranger on TV, yes, I'm that old, but I would equate them with the bad guys who were always dressed in black. Of course, everything on TV was only black and white anyway, so it made it easy. But the, 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 the cow, the bad the outlaws were always dressed in black. The Lone Ranger was dressed in white. That's how I kind of viewed the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus dressed in white. Pharisees dressed in black. Bad guys, this is easy. They got the right robes. They're two-dimensional. They stand in the way of Jesus and his ministry. Yeah, I get that. But they are of no relevance to me whatsoever, except for clearly they're the bad guys. It would be a mistake for us to view them that way. Tim Keller suggests that everyone, even atheists, are functionally religious because a religion allows them, like the Pharisees, to say God owes them something. They're doing it all wrong, or excuse me, they're doing all the right things, then they should be in good standing with whatever power in the universe, they would say, is running their lives or is in proximity to their lives. We're all religious, either overtly or not. Even the anti-religious are religious. They set up their own codes. They set up their own standard rather than looking to God's law. They set up their own standard. Here's what I say a good life should look like. Now I'm going to set out to try to check my boxes. If you don't believe that, consider that everybody has a sense that there is a, an unfairness in the universe, if, why, if my life is like this, it's unfair. Why is it unfair? Something is out of, out of kilter. Religious also, religion also allows us to feel superior to other people. Well, whatever I am, at least I'm not that. Kind of like that, that Pharisee in the temple. I'm glad I'm this and not that. So wherever you are in the spectrum of morality, you have your rules, they have their rules. I'm glad I'm not, like, I'm glad I'm not you. Oh, I'm glad I'm not you.
we feel superior to each other through our religious practices. At the same time, we all wrestle with a sense, as I said, that life is unfair, and as a result, what do we do? We work harder. We work harder at self-justification. We work harder in our jobs because I don't have what he has. I mean, I guess I need to work harder. We work harder in school. I want to be here or there. I must have to work harder. I'm not getting it done. We work hard in our relationships. I want more people to notice me. I guess I need to go to the gym and lift stuff. But the solution we seem to find in everything that's out of balance is restlessness, more work. We need to work to justify ourselves. For the Pharisees, that meant more restrictions, more ceremonies, more demonstrations of piety. And as I just said or suggested, are we really any different? Just different, different things. The same idea under, under, underneath them. In verse 23, we find the Pharisees contributing or continuing to split their world into two camps, the righteous and the sinners. In this case, they're arguing based on Sabbath observance, and Jesus again defies their categories. They're saying there are righteous people, there are sinners, we're the righteous, they're the bad guys. Jesus isn't having it. The righteous leaders took a regulated and fenced view of the Sabbath. There were literally 39 forms of activity permitted or not permitted on the Sabbath. 39. Including how many steps they could take. Can you imagine what you could do with an iPhone in the day of Jesus? Like, I'm counting steps because I want more, but they would be like, ooh, I can only take this many more because it's the Sabbath. There were prohibitions on farm chores, household chores, on harvesting chores, which may be why that they were looking at Jesus' disciples while they were popping heads off of grain and having a snack on the Sabbath. Maybe that's what was the bee in their bonnet. Oh, he is old. Here they accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the law. The penalty for desecrating the Sabbath was death. So this is a pretty serious accusation. Why are they desecrating the Sabbath? Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus doesn't dismiss their accusations. But he hits them where they live. He directs them to Scripture. They're supposed to know this stuff. And he uses an illustration of David, whom Israel prized as its greatest king. Here's what Jesus said it's in today's passage. Verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus, didn't we just ask you why you were... You and your disciples weren't observing the Sabbath. There's no Sabbath here. Interesting. In this story, David's running from Saul. And Saul is trying to kill him because Saul sees David as a threat to the throne. David's on the run with his band of brothers and they run out of supplies and they're hungry and they flee to a place called Nob. 
and visit a priest who's presiding over the tabernacle, and David asked the priest for food. Priest is on the tabernacle are kind of in thin times as well. Looks around, the only food here is the bread of the presence, which is food set aside, consecrated food set aside for the priest and the priest alone, according to ceremonial law. And he gives it to David to eat. Because the priest recognizes that ceremonial law is subservient to human law, to human mercy and kindness. He recognizes the economy of how God functions. So this is the story that Jesus shares with them. And as I mentioned, there's no Sabbath in that story. It didn't happen on the Sabbath. What's Jesus up to? Jesus is pointing to ceremonies. Ceremonial law would have, would have prevented David from approaching a holy God in such a way. It simply wasn't done. It's in the code. It's in the legal code. Jesus uses the story to say that ceremonial law is temporary and provisional and to point out the truth behind the law. Then Jesus makes another outrageous claim. We already heard the bridegroom claim. Now he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus claims the power to forgive sins. He claims the position of the bridegroom. And now he has established himself as Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees are not down with this at all. Jesus is clearly saying something that they can't, they won't hear. Jesus is saying that he is God. Well, how can Jesus make this claim that he's Lord of the Sabbath? He can make the claim because he was there when the Sabbath was instituted. We read at the beginning of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Jesus was there at creation. That's how he can say he was Lord of the Sabbath. Let's look at Genesis 2, 1 and 2. It's part of the creation story. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's interesting. God, who is, he embodies energy. He's the source of energy. Right? I mean, he is energy. That's one of his manifestations. He's also justice. He's also love. He's also, he embodies these characteristics. God, who is energy, finishes speaking creation into existence, and it says, and then he rested. One thing we can be sure, he was not exhausted. It's not possible. What does that mean? He rested. 
God saw everything he made, he pronounced it good, and he rested. In effect, he is saying, it is finished. It is good. There's nothing more that needs to be done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now later, next chapter in Genesis, God establishes Adam and Eve in the garden, granting them complete access to all the goodness he has created, but with one prohibition. They are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you think about that for a minute, it seems pretty random. If God created everything and pronounced it good, which isn't our economy of good, it doesn't mean God gave himself a B on this report card, okay? Good, God's standard of good is perfect. He pronounced everything good, and yet there's a prohibition there. If everything God, that God created is good, why would there be a need for any prohibition? God appears to be calling his people to understand that he is good and that they should obey his law because they trust him. Not because he was never calling them to a means to try to gain favor with him. The Sabbath was made for man because from the beginning God desired an intimate, loving relationship with his people. The bridegroom and the bride. While he hasn't yet fully explained what his mission is on earth in the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus is saying underneath declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath is this. I'm going to the cross where I'm going to reconcile sinners to God, where I'm going to restore that which God pronounced good by bearing the shame and wrath due to them, and then I'm going to say it is finished, it is done, so that those who are in me can cease from their striving. I'm going to reclaim the Sabbath so that my followers can rest from their physical and spiritual burden and engage with me. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But that statement doesn't pertain only to the Sabbath. All of God's law was made for us, not us for the law. That's where the Pharisees got it backwards. The law is a gift, it's not a chain, it's not a burden. God's law is the way to thrive. And Jesus is saying he's not concerned with our behavioral checklists. He's concerned with the attitudes of our hearts. The purpose of the Sabbath is to restore, and ironically, the Pharisees thwarted that purpose with their regulations. They attacked the law of God himself in their attempt to live up to the law. Uh, just as God told Moses to tell his people, when Moses said to God, who should I say sent me? Because they're not going to believe this story, burning bush and such. It's like, mm. who, who should I say sent me? 
And God says, tell the people that I am sent you. Here, Jesus is saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the rest. Jesus embodies the ceremonial law. He is the Sabbath. He's the bread of life. He's the rest. Jesus says, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you my rest. Lay down the burden of striving by means of religious work or vocational work. Lay down the burden of self-proving. Lay down the claims of self-righteousness, the chains of self-righteousness. Put them down. At the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus returns to the synagogue to perform a miracle to to provide evidence that he is who he claims to be, the Lord of the Sabbath. Just like he did with the paralytic after he said, son, your sins are forgiven, now stand up, take up your mat, and go home. He's doing something similar here. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath to perform a miracle to underscore what he has just told the people that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus here chooses to heal a man whose affliction appeared to be minor compared to the afflictions we've already seen in Mark, the afflictions of leprosy, uh, the afflictions of demon possession, the affliction of paralysis. This man is described as having an atrophied appendage. He has a withered hand, like nothing any of us would desire to have for sure. The key point here is Sabbath regulations could be overridden only in the case of endangerment to life. This man's malady was not life-threatening. There would be nothing to prevent Jesus from saying, come back tomorrow and I'll fix your hand. But Jesus is making a point to underscore what he has just said by proclaiming himself Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus asks whether it is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save a life, or to kill. The response, silence. No response. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save a life, or to kill? And when he gets no feedback from the Pharisees, Jesus explains an emotion we haven't yet seen in the Gospel of Mark. It says here, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now the Greek word that Mark uses here for anger is the word for fury. This wasn't a little annoyance, this was outright fury. Jesus was furious. He was outraged that the religious leaders cared more about their traditions than they did about the welfare of an afflicted person. But notice what it says after the comma in that statement. Jesus looked around them with anger, comma, grieved at their hardness of heart. So in his anger, Jesus also lamented. It says he was grieved. 
that they had such hardening of heart that they could not see what was right in front of them. And even more amazing is that in his grace, Jesus felt compassion for them. Certainly a compassion they didn't feel for the man that was in front of them with a withered hand. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do, harm, to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? Jesus was about to restore a man's withered hand to do good rather than harm. So it's, it's pretty obvious why the Pharisees didn't respond to that. There's no way out. If they say it's better to do good, Jesus heals the man, he's broken the Sabbath. Oops, how do we explain that? If he doesn't heal the withered man's hand, what's up with the Pharisees? So they've painted themselves into a corner and they can't respond. But Jesus is suggesting something much more convicting because Jesus knew that the people who were accusing him had murder in their hearts. This wasn't just about the man with the withered hand. Jesus also asks, to save a life or to kill. Verse 6 tells us that after the miracle, Jesus, the Pharisees, went out and immediately held counsel with some group of people called the Herodians. They held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. This is astounding. This is absolutely mind-blowing. The Herodians and the Pharisees were sworn enemies. Now, we're a, divided, we're a divided country right now, but it's nothing compared to the division between the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians followed the kings of the Herod dynasty who were put in place by Rome to rule over Israel-ish rule. Rome was the ultimate authority. Along with their Roman masters, the Herodians embraced a Hellenistic Roman secular worldview. They were essentially the liberals of their time. In fact, much of the Pharisees' liberal or legalism, much of the reason why they're walking around with their checklists saying bad, 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 good, bad, bad, is because they had fear that this encroaching secularism would wipe out their faith. These people hated each other. And you can imagine that the Herodians' view of the Pharisees was like, these guys aren't any fun. Who do these guys think they are to try to impose their moral view on us? We're like the Romans. We get to do what we want. It's all relative. So the Pharisees' reaction, the conservative reaction to the liberal Herodians was to increase the law, to put the law on steroids, to place an even greater burden on the people to try to live up to the law. That was their response. That's all they, that's all they could think to do. And yet, these two groups, these two groups are diametrically opposed to each other in philosophy and worldview 
are willing to set aside their differences when it comes to Jesus. So we learn a couple things from this. First, the Pharisees feared Jesus' influence more than they did that of the Herodians. And second, the Herodians feared Jesus' influence as much as the Pharisees did. Neither Neither group wanted anything of what Jesus was offering. Why? Well, Jesus told both groups that they were lost. Jesus has the same message for both the woman at the well and for Nicodemus the Pharisee. The way to God is not through self-justification. It's not setting up your own pattern for life and saying, this is how I will live, and I'm going to check all my boxes. And it's not through the law, which is looking at God's law and turning it into a box-checking exercise. Jesus says, no, no, that doesn't work. You're both lost. The condemnation that each of those groups reserved for the other will ultimately fall on them outside of Jesus' paradigm-smashing work. No matter how hard we try, we can't achieve the rest embodied by Jesus. Can't do it. Across the spectrum, got the immoral people over here, we got the hyper-moral people over here, Outside of Christ, they're both, they're all, we're all, all across the spectrum, cut off personally from a holy God. We're all condemned to a profound restlessness from which only the Lord of the Sabbath can provide rescue. We've seen that salvation depends entirely on God. Leprosy, paralysis, atrophy, they're all spiritual representation or all physical representations of spiritual conditions that plague us. We've also seen the great physician reach out to reconcile our brokenness to him. Tim Keller puts it this way. On the cross, Jesus was saying of the work underneath your work, the thing that makes you truly weary, this this need to prove yourself because who you are and what you do are never good enough, that is finished. He has lived the life you should have lived. He has died to death, you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you, and you can be satisfied with life. That is cause for celebration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you that you have established your Sabbath and that Jesus has established himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, the ultimate rest that we can find only in you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes at us afresh each time we read it. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is there to guide us. And Lord, we pray as we look forward to the table with you in just a moment that we will be hyper-focused on these proclamations that you have made, knowing that you took the punishment that we deserve 
you bore that, you conquered death, you rose from the dead, you ascended to heaven, and even now you're seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. For that we can do nothing but be thankful and celebrate. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.